Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm back to the New Books Network, the Archaeology Channel. I'm here today with Paul Cosman. He is the John Loeb Associate Professor of the Humanities at Harvard University. Last year, he published the book that we will discuss today, Time and Its Adversaries and the Seleucid Empire, published again last year by Harvard University Press. Welcome, Professor Cosman. Hi there. Thank you so much for for having me on your show. So we're going to start out actually, by backing up a bit. In the preface, you explained that this book is conceived as a companion and completion of your first book, The Land of the Elephant Kings, Space, Territory, and Ideology in the Seleucid Empire. Can you elaborate on both that book and this book's contributions to a single project of categorical history, a study of the spatial and temporal structures and concepts by which the Seleucid Empire and its subjects made sense of their world? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, as you say, the books are sort of intended um, as a pair. Um, I think I had this in mind even when I began the first. So just to back up, um, give a little context of kind of what the Seleucid Empire is, um, why I think it's historically interesting, and where these books came from. So I I, I work on ancient Greek history. um, And the Seleucid Empire is really strange. It's a weird one within within this discipline. Um, Since about the 8th century BCE, the Greek world that we know and that has been kind of canonized as the archaic and classical periods was a world of city-states, which hugged the skirts of the Mediterranean Sea and especially the Aegean. Um, And I tell my students that this world um, was characterized by three big factors. The first is an orientation to the sea. The Greeks you know, since Odysseus are sea travelers, traders. It's a connectivity over over water. The second is an internal disunity. These are city-states which are tiny territories engaged in often um, rivalrous interactions with each other. But the third, and I think the most relevant, is the presence of really powerful non-Greek neighbors. That's the territorial kingdom in Egypt, in Mesopotamia, um, in the Levant, and ultimately all of this, all of these being conquered by the Persian Empire, stretching from the Indus River up to uh, up to the Hellespont. So you've got a, a world of city-states focused on the sea, powerful non-Greek neighbors, and then this all suddenly changes in 334 BCE, which is uh, the, the standard opening date of the Hellenistic Age, Um, It's when Alexander the Great, who's the young king of Macedonia, um, guides his warship across across the Aegean and throws a spear onto the beach at Troy and launches his invasion of the Persian Empire. Um, It's a decade-long invasion, and it ends up uniting the Greek world with a political landscape of the Near East, North Africa, Central Asia, and even Northern India. It's one of the most densely understood moments in antiquity. It's really well studied. It's completely fascinating. 
Um, but then Alexander dies. Um, and after his death, because he didn't appoint an heir and successor, um, there's a long civil war for about a generation. But it finally settles down into three big kingdoms called the Hellenistic kingdoms. Um, the Antigonid kingdoms in Macedonia were kind of ruling over mainland Greece and northern Greece. Uh, the more famous Ptolemies in Egypt, who are kind of bicultural kingdom, pharaonic um, in their political ideology and ending up with a famous Cleopatra VII. And finally, the, the one I study, the Seleucid Empire, which stretches from initially sort of modern day Bulgaria up to uh, Afghanistan and from Armenia down to uh, the island of Bahrain. And over the course of the second and first centuries, the Roman Republic would conquer each of these kingdoms. Um, the, the period of these three great kingdoms, one in Macedonia, the one in Egypt, and the one across the Near East, is known as the Hellenistic period. And it's absolutely thrilling. Um, it's when, I would say, the spatial frame of classical Greek history explodes out to the borders of India, Russia, the Sudan. Um, because Greeks are ruling over this territory, Near Eastern history and Greek history kind of become the same project. Um, there's, a, there's an urgency, a new urgency to all the kinds of cultural interaction which, which happen as a result. And I would say for the first time, um, Greek history is a history of empire. It's a history of ruling over non-Greek populations. And um, I, I guess everything that follows from that. Within this world, the Seleucids are a fascinating problem because they've got this vast imperial territory integrating the populations from um, Anatolia, the Levant, the Syrians, the Phoenicians, the Jews, the Babylonians, the Iranians, the inhabitants of Central Asia. So they've got a problem of managing cultural diversity. Um, at the same time, uh, they're ruling uh, a territory which doesn't include the land from which they come, which is Macedonia and Greece. The whole ruling elite, um, the, the kings and their court and their courtiers, are in a situation of diaspora. It's a really strange situation for an empire. Um, I tell my students it would be a bit like imagining British rule in India without Britain. I see. Um, and so I guess the two books, the two books were an attempt to try and understand this strange um, political configuration and ask how did the Seleucids make themselves at home in this new territory? And what consequence did this have on the subject populations? So the first book, which was, um, was, my, was a book which came out of my dissertation, um, asked, uh, asked how did the Seleucids make the territory of the empire their own? And it looked at things like court-sponsored exploration and ethnographic writings, the founding of cities, um, the schematization of space, road building, measurement, uh, science and, and so forth. It's uh, it was very much a top-down book, interested in, and I guess what the Seleucids told themselves about themselves. Um, the new book I've written, uh, "Time and Its Adversaries in the Seleucid Empire," um, came in some sense from a realization of the 
that a large amount was missing from the first book. Um, if the new book, if the first book was top down, the new book is bottom up, and it's looking at how the local populations made sense of the Seleucids, um, local populations who've been rooted in their landscapes for for, gener- for centuries, millennia, um, are facing Macedonian invaders. How do they how do they incorporate them, make sense of them, deal with them? Um, so, if the first book was a top down approach to the Seleucids, with a major historical problem being that of space and territory with the Seleucids trying to gain control of an extensive empire. The second book is more of a bottom-up question of uh, history and time. How did local populations um, plot this new reality in terms of their long long experience of empires um, in their territories? In addition to the uh, course uh, Seleucid territory and uh, Babylonia, you kind of already touched on this, but why does your study focus on Western Iran and Judea? And what is your source base? Yeah, exactly. So as you said, um, I've already mentioned that the Seleucid Empire is massive. Um, It stretches from uh, across most of the Middle East and some of um, Central Asia. Um, one One of the difficulties in talking about the Seleucid Empire, is that it doesn't really fall in neatly into a modern academic discipline. Um, its territories cut across classical history, which it would be, say, in the Greek city-states in its west, um, and then the encounters with Rome in the 2nd and 1st centuries BCE, Jewish history and Bible studies, um, especially Second Temple period, uh, Mesopotamian history, uh, the Seleucid Empire falls into a period which has been called Late Babylonia, which really means after the end of indigenous Babylonian kingship. Um, And finally, Iranian history, where the Hellenistic world has been basically understudied because it falls in a strange kind of no-man's land between the Achaemenid Empire, which preceded, and then the Parthian and and, uh, Sasanian empires, which which succeed to its territories. So it's... um, it's not one of the empires which succeeded in generating an academic discipline around itself. And it has no one in the world today um, who claims to be its heirs or successors. So it's, um, it's a bit of a ghost empire. So one of, one of the aims in both these books was to argue that contrary to how it's kind of been studied, which is regionally within these academic disciplines which slice it up, there was a coherence and a kind of a pan-imperial unity to it um, as a project that requires pulling together a lot of sources from different disciplines. So in answer to your first question, sort of why not just Babylonia, but also Western Iran and Judea, it's because the empire is all these spaces. Um, why this, What is the source space? Uh, I would say there are three basic kinds of source. Um, most familiar to, to ancient historians and classicists would be um, the written sources preserved in a manuscript tradition from antiquity. That'd be things like um, ancient historiography, the works of Polybius and Livy, especially a bunch of ancient Jewish historiography, not preserved in the Jewish tradition, but as the apocrypha of, of the Catholic Bible. Um, the key text there would be first and second Maccabees. Um, but I've added 
to that in the second book, a whole set of sources that are usually siloed off into religious studies. Um, basically, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but basically apocalyptic texts, things like the book of Daniel. Um, one source in particular is really excited to use because it hasn't um, really attracted much attention from Hellenistic historians. And that is a, a book called First Enoch. This is um, a work originally written in Aramaic in the third and second centuries BCE, a composite of texts um, translated into, <clears throat> into Greek and then from Greek into Ge'ez, classical Ethiopic, the text which was lost with the, um, the Aramaic and the Greek versions are lost except for fragments. Um, and they weren't, and this text wasn't canonized by Judaism or Northern Christianity, but it was preserved by the Ethiopian church, rediscovered at the end of the 18th century by an explorer of the Nile, brought back to Europe. And it's slowly, slowly being recognized that um, this work, First Enoch, can tell us a lot about Hellenistic history. So the first set of sources are kind of written ones with which historians are kind of most at ease. The second, I would say, is archaeology. Um, there are sites across the empire, the famous cities such as Dura Europus, Iconum, Seleucia on the Tigris, but also a bunch of new places emerging all the time, which were Seleucid, which were either new Seleucid city foundations or forts they constructed to control their territory, or they were old cities like Babylon, which the, which the Seleucids occupied, and you can see their presence quite clearly within them. So I'm quite interested in um, how, uh, how the Seleucid in the first book, how the Seleucid spatial ideology, and in the second book, how the Seleucid chronological system is made visible and present in the material evidence. The big problem with the archaeology is that um, the area of the Seleucid Empire is one which has suffered enormously from recent wars. Um, the biggest problem in its kind of heartland area of Syria has been the Syrian civil war and um, the depredations of ISIS. It's once, you know, once every couple of months, I'll go on Google Earth images to sort of see what the state of these cities are like. Take Dura Europus, a Seleucid fort on, um, on the Euphrates River, and it's looted to destruction. It, the ground looks like it's pockmarked, um, just being kind of illegally excavated. So enormous amounts are being lost, um, but also enormous amounts are kind of entering the antiquities trade illegally. So written sources which have come down in a continuous tradition to us, archaeology. The third set are inscriptions. These are texts which are discovered archaeologically, so a kind of combination of the first and second types of evidence. <clears throat> um, they're dug up from the ground. There are two big kinds I use. Uh, the first are Greek stone inscriptions. So these are um, things like city-state decrees um, inscribed on stone by, uh, by Greek communities, but also Seleucid royal instructions, um, things delivered, uh, instructions delivered to the subject communities of the Seleucid Empire and inscribed and erected in public places so that they could be read. Um, alongside the Greek stone inscriptions, the other great source of of epigraphy of contemporary Hellenistic writing is Babylonian cuneiform texts on clay, clay tablets. There are literally hundreds of thousands of these. Um, most 
are translated, but a good number still aren't, and more are emerging all the time. And they give us contemporary direct access into, uh, into the world of, of the ancient Babylonian temples, which are kind of struggling to deal with uh, the new Hellenistic dispensation of the Seleucid Empire. Um, I would say one big difference between the Greek stone inscriptions and the Babylonian cuneiform evidence is that the uh, stone inscriptions were meant to be public and as visible as possible and kind of statements in the civic landscape, whereas the cuneiform texts were private, are um, really tough to read, small, sort of the size of an iPhone or one of the Loeb classical library volumes. Um, to give a shout out to my publisher. Um, so they, <clears throat> they give us very different kinds of information. They're strangely both more personal, but also um, less close to the, to the political dynamics of the period. Can you elucidate the concept of the Seleucid era, beginning with year one, which is approximately 312, 311 BCE? and provide examples of sources to substantiate the shift from milestone hyponymous and regional years to this Seleucid era. And why did the era continue after the death of Seleucus I in 281 uh, BCE? So when I began this project, I had thought for a long time that dates were not that interesting, that you know they were kind of the antiquarian matter that we needed to control to write interesting history. Um, and really through reading, I guess, a bunch of sort of philosophy of history, philosophy of time books, I came to, um, to think, to, I would say recognize, but that sounds too strong, but to, to think that um, dates are actually at the very, very heart of what the historical project is for two reasons. Um, Putting a date on something allows it to only happen once. And those dates allow us then to order all these happenings. It's a, um, so I think more than we realize the modes by which we apprehend historical time, the dating systems that we use, frame how we experience our world. Um, they deal with how we kind of reckon with the past, talk about the future, Imagine, uh, imagine the, uh, Im uh, deal with with a sense of impermanence that we all have inhabiting a world which is far larger, far older than any of us. If you ask someone to give a date today, like what is the year? It's twenty nineteen. Um, we've got this simple system where this year's twenty nineteen, last year was twenty eighteen, next year will be twenty twenty. We're completely confident that a century ago, it was 1919. Um, a thousand years into the future, it will be 3019, if there's anyone around still. Um, we're all fluent with these years. We're used to writing them. Everywhere, it's second nature. When I was a kid, I used to line up my pennies um, by, the, by the date of minting. Uh, I basically do the same thing now with public. I have to give the publication date. Um, of all the articles and books I read in my scholarship, um, year numbers and the kind of timeline which underlies them is, is completely ubiquitous. Um, one of the things which is really hard to grasp about the ancient world is that before the Seleucid Empire, there was no such number timeline. Um, we didn't 
there were no numbered years of this kind with which to think about past, present, and future, with which to locate yourself in relation to others, um, others who are neighbors or others who are people in the past or the future. Um, I think it would take an enormous effort of the historical imagination to kind of unthink ourselves back to a time without, um, to, a, a, to living in a world without this timeline, this linear directional timeline. I suspect it's not really possible. Um, but the world before the Seleucid Empire was one in which you didn't date things in the way we used to. You, in fact, could date them only in sort of two basic ways. You could connect dates to a famous event from the past. So uh, it would be like us saying something happened three years after the invasion of Iraq. Um, I probably dated myself immensely there. Um, so it's in the nature of these things. Or in antiquity, <laughs> um, something happened in the year that um, the king reached the source of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Um, so those are, those are called year, um, year dates. Uh, they're intimately tied to politics and to memory, but they're also local, they're very localized. You can't use them in neighboring states. It's quite hard to work out synchronisms between events according to such a system. The alternative way, much more common, was to date things uh, by an official. So in the Athenian world, you would date things by the eponymous archon. In Rome, you would date things by the names of the two consuls for that year. Um, much more typically in the Near East, you would date things by the regnal name, uh, year of, of the king. So you would say something happened in the fifth year of King Alexander the Great, or in the 40th year of King Nebuchadnezzar II. These are ways of ordering time, of thinking historically, um, that are quite unlike saying 2019, 2020, 2021. Um, in fact, they're really events dating other events rather than um, that they're, they're of the same order. They apply only within a quite delimited geography, the geography of the states. They're dependent on scribal practices of record keeping. They're not automated. They're highly sensitive to political change, the king's death, conquest, that kind of thing. Um, that's to say they're neither translocal, you can't apply them outside your community, and they're not transcendent either. They are of the same order as the things that they are dating. The Seleucid Empire changed all this for whatever reason, and it's a, I think it's a, a really difficult question to answer. Um, Seleucus I introduced something called the Seleucid Era, which is uh, the deep ancestor and the first example of the, of the counting system we use today of just a number which increases in a kind of n plus one system, irreversibly, continuously, ongoing, unbroken, one, two, three, four, dot, 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 forever, it's still counting. Um, Seleucus invented this system of just a year counting in succession, and crucially, his son and successor Antiochus I didn't restart the clock. In all other in most other imperial systems, when a new king took the throne, you would return to a year one. So year one of Seleucus would go up to 
at the end of his reign, King Antiochus, his successor, would take over, and you would expect it to go back to year one. It doesn't. Antiochus just keeps the count going, and all the successors do the same. So it's just a number getting bigger and bigger and bigger um, without any kind of barrier ahead of it. Um, it's we call it the Seleucid era system. There are various names for it in antiquity, um, but it made a bunch of things possible. Most importantly, I think it opened up future time. It gave future time the same texture um, and quality as present time and recent past. Previously, if you were in, um, say, the 40th year of King Nebuchadnezzar II, who dies in his 43rd year, on the throne, um, what would you call a hundred years from now, or two hundred years, or a thousand years? You would know that that time would probably exist, but you couldn't really name it. You couldn't share that name. Um, it would would lack a quality. Conversely, if you're in year two hundred and thirty of the Seleucid era, um, or indeed, I'd say if you're in year twenty nineteen, it's easy, it's simple, it's universal to number 100, 300, 1,000 years into the future. There's a beautiful um, image in a novel by Carl over Knausgaard, which I think captures the radical newness of this. And I, I, I brought it with me to, um, to read because I think it, you know, much, much more successfully than I can, it kind of gives a sense of the radical newness of this time. The quote is, it was as if a wall had been removed in the room they inhabited. The world no longer enveloped them completely. There was suddenly an opening. Their glance no longer met any resistance, but swept on through more of the same. So in the book, I'm suggesting that the Seleucid era is the discovery of transcendent, translocal time and a thinkable future. There have been intimations of these things before, and the Seleucid era is building on important precedents. But I think it still makes, um, it opens up for investigation, um, new possibilities and problems of politics, history, and religion. And it's kind of the politics, history, and religion of the Seleucid era, its consequences, and its adversaries, which the book is really about. So let's explore this a bit more. Can you explain really briefly the four stages that culminated in the establishment of the Seleucid era, as well as the uh, era's linear reformulation of the beginning, as well as the uh, uh, Seleucidization of the Babylonian New Year and its festivities? Uh, in your answer, can you uh, address evidence, for example, of the Temple of Day One and the Orontes uh, River Horsehead, which I thought was particularly interesting. Um, and what did evidence in the Ptolemaic uh, Perian marble in uh, Daniel 11.5 reveal about challenges to this uh, burgeoning temporal regime? Sure. So the, um, the establishment of the era is super complicated, and I'm, I don't think I'm going to bore your readers with the, your listeners, sorry, with the um, specific details of its invention. I would just say we know the kind of step-by-step -step introduction of this era because it was uh, introduced and invented in Babylonia, probably using Babylonian um, uh, chronological astronomical um, uh, knowledge. Um, it's important it was introduced in Babylonia because uh, 
Babylonian sources in clay, the clay tablets, combine an obsession with accurate dating with the fact that they're basically indestructible. Um, so we've got a lot of evidence on the ground. The key point is it, it's created gradually, and you can see Seleucus I feeling out how to respond to the absence of legitimacy in the aftermath of Alexander the Great's death. When Alexander's son is over in distant Macedonia, he doesn't really know who's in charge. He doesn't know quite how hard to push for his own legitimate kingship. Finally, it gets introduced when he um, takes the diadem, which is the Hellenistic form of a crown, as um, and declares himself king, king of Asia. In terms of, I guess I spoke earlier about the Seleucid era making the future possible. Um, it opens up this future time. It also does something else. Um, in normal regional dating systems uh, and in other systems, you would have a year one which would recur. As I mentioned, you, know, you would expect when Seleucus I died, his son Antiochus to, to take the throne um, and declare a year one. He doesn't. What this means is that year one of the Seleucid era is, uh, for the first time ever, an absolute beginning. It's the one and only year one which will ever exist. And all other dates used will be constantly referring back, back to it, like a kind of center of gravity. Um, in, fact, in fact, I'd say it's kind of like a, a big bang. Um, because, because this was the kind of big bang of the empire and played this function, it allowed the Seleucids to model their kingdom on the Babylonian myth of the creation of the world, and that kind of the, the prototype, the form, I argue in the book, that they gave to their kingdom, the kind of mythic structure um, around which they sort of celebrated its foundation and the foundation of the era was, um, was this Babylonian myth of creation called the Enuma Elish, where uh, the Babylonian god Marduk creates the world, founds Babylon, and really importantly, begins historical time, year one, dot, dot, dot. Um, one of the most intriguing pieces of evidence which you refer to is in a bunch of cuneiform tablets which come from the Hellenistic world, from the Seleucid Empire. Um, a new temple appears. Um, it's written in, in a Sumerian cuneiform. Um, the, the Sumerograms read as, Etu ud one come to, which translates as the temple of day one. This is a new temple. Um, there's no attestation of it before in the millennia of cuneiform um, evidence. Uh, I argue in the book uh, as a hypothesis, because it's not quite enough evidence to push it all the way, that this looks to be a basically a temple of the Seleucid era, a temple of the Big Bang, the foundation of the empire. It's where political religion happens in Babylonia. It's a commemoration of the foundation of the era. Um, whenever the king or an official goes to, goes to Babylon, they go and sacrifice at the temple of day one. Um, when the Parthians conquer Babylon, they close up the temple and end sacrifices there. So it seems to be closely associated with the Seleucids. As for the other sources you mentioned, um, the horse head on the Orontes River is a uh, it's kind of a, a, a similar thing. It's a statue group set up by Seleucus I next to Antioch by Daphne, his big Western capital, um, which similarly commemorates uh, 
the foundation of the, of the of the kingdom, Seleucus's arrival in Babylon, the event which would be sort of year one of the era. And then in the other sources you mentioned, the, the Parian marble, this historiographic text um, from the island of Paros, which is a close Ptolemaic affiliation, so an affiliation with a Seleucid's big enemy. Uh, this is a text which runs through kind of the history of, of the Greek world, um, right the way back from the Bronze Age onwards. It contains one solar eclipse, which is a really bad omen. Um, and it has artificially and unhistorically moved that solar eclipse um, from when it actually happened to the date of, to the year one of the Seleucid era. So it's kind of giving this momentous Big Bang a really nasty coloring. Um, it's, it's what an enemy would do. And Daniel 11.5 is doing something similar in an apocalyptic text. Why and how did the uh, Seleucid Empire reverse the numericalization of dates? And can you give examples of how Boulay arc archival accumulation of date marked documents and archival destruction all established a relational temporal order. So I think that's really important because I've, so I've discussed that the Seleucid era is an irreversible system. It's time's arrow. It's, uh, it's directional time, which will never curve back into a circle. There are two other features of it, which are important. The first is it was represented just as a number. It was no longer year 40 of King Nebuchadnezzar. It was 123. Whatever language you were using, 123 is an example, obviously, of a Seleucid era year. You could have year 70. You could have year 311. Um, whatever language you were using within the empire, um, if it was Greek, Akkadian, Hebrew, Phoenician, Aramaic, Iranian, and many, many other languages, um, the number is the same, 123 or 70 or 311. Um, and I think this by itself has a kind of homogenizing force. It's a number, it's a universal system. And second, and to a certain extent dependent on this, um, within the Seleucid Empire, the year number, just as a number by itself, um, was marked onto an unprecedented range of objects. Um, part of the research of the book was um, sort of excavating out of archaeological reports and various publications, uh, literally tens of thousands of objects which were um, marked with a year number. Things like tombstones, royal letters, tax receipts, coins, priest lists, horoscopes, rings, etc., etc., etc. This was. So the, the year number, and, the, and, and these are just the things which survive, there must have been hundreds of thousands, if not probably millions of objects bearing the year number um, and the Seleucid era system um, within the social world of, um, of the subjects and rulers of the Seleucid empire. This is a kind of mass marking of time, which I think is without precedent. I don't really think we see it in other states from East Mediterranean or West Asia. Um, to put it strongly, I would say in no other state in the ancient world did rulers and subjects inhabit spaces that were dated as comprehensively and consistently. Um, furthermore, because these numbers have um, a relational order, because they never go back to year one, you always know um, 
if something is older or younger. There's a simple um, linear system behind them. Um, in the book, I argue that displaying the era year date, the, um, the, the, the chronological dates on hundreds of thousands of public objects and quotidian objects and ones you'd take into your home and things you'd speak aloud and things which would just be internalized, um, even in your unspoken thoughts, carried the imperial year count deep into, um, into personal lives, private spaces, social life in a way that no other technology could. It would have been visualized, read aloud, repeated, um, I guess the key point is that the authority of empire is now represented just by a number. Um, the empire is represented by a year number, and this number by itself stands for the history of the empire from its foundation up till now, the authorizing structures of the empire, which are numbering things, and also you yourself implicated, integrated into the imperial system. Let me give just one example, maybe because you mentioned Bulai. Bulai are... Um, uh, clay seal impressions of um, ring seals. So if you wanted to, basically the, the equivalent of a signature in antiquity was um, impressing something with your seal ring. In the Seleucid Empire, for certain officials, it seems that the impression of the seal ring, the thing which gave authority to a document, was simply the year date. Um, the Seleucid capital of Babylonia, it's a city called Seleucia on the Tigris, just south of Baghdad. Um, it's, it's partially excavated. It was one of the great cities of the Hellenistic world, probably as large as Alexandria by Egypt, 200 to 3,000 inhabitants. At its northern side, there's a massive agora, 140 meters long, and stretching along the whole side of this agora, is an archive building, 140 meters long, six meters wide. It's, it's a bit of a crazy building. It's kind of as close to just a line as any ancient building can get. When um, Italian archaeologists excavated this building, they found 25,000 clay bullae, these clay ceilings, which the building was burnt. So the documents that these bullae um, once sealed have all been destroyed. So only the seals survive. But within this 140 meter stretch, about 16,000 had the year number um, on as the main impression. Uh, it's just one example of the kind of total social penetration of, um, of the Seleucid era system. It, it indicates that when people wanted to sell a house, buy property, pay their taxes, um, everything sort of to do with the fiscal interests, of the state, um, they would be they would bring it beneath the date seal, have that have that date stamped on it, and be sort of um, assimilated into this system. What evidence substantiates the notion that the Seleucid imperial time system became the locus of the conventions of fair exchange and commercial assurance? Further, how and why did civic and personal inscriptions confirm the unity of communities, while imperial inscriptions signified the union of disparate acts of empire? So there's quite a lot in that. I'll, I'll begin with the um, with a market. In, I, I think you were quoting 
from the book Imperial, the Imperial Time System became the locus of the conventions of fair exchange. Um, ancient trade, like modern trade, I guess, was is a place of enormous distrust. Um, it, in the ancient world, like today, it was adversarial. Um, everyone is trying to win the biggest profit. Um, but there are information asymmetries between the buyer and the seller. The buyer always knows more. Uh, the, sorry, the seller always knows more than the buyer. One way ancient states dealt with this problem of um, adversary and asymmetrical trade, adversarial and asymmetrical trade, was um, to vest authority not in the interactions of traders, but in the mechanisms of commerce. So that is not in the face-to-face, -face, not putting trust in, um, in the seller and the buyer at a market stall, but rather vesting um, weights, measures, and other devices of trade um, with the authority of the, of the state or empire. So it had been the um, responsibility of various kinds of civic or imperial overseers throughout the ancient Mediterranean world um, and elsewhere to, say, mark a guarantee onto the surface of a trading standard. So at Athens, um, a market weight unit, something used to weigh out a fair and legitimate proportion of some product, grain, say, would have the head of Athena stamped on it. And the head of Athena would tell you um, that this has been authorized by the city, it's legitimate. At Syracuse, it's uh, the name of the magistrate in charge of the market. Many, many, many examples of these. Um, their images, their symbols, their words. Within the Seleucid Empire, uh, this guarantee mark, the kind of symbol of official fairness that you'd um, strike onto the mechanisms of market trade was the year number. Um, would either stand alone or it would be associated with uh, other imperial icons or local magistrates' names. Um, so in other words, if you wanted to know the precise volume of a liquid or how much was in an amphora or the correct weight on a, um, on a market scale, um, the thing which would guarantee that you were safe, that you weren't being cheated, um, was the imperial year date, just a number. Um, to my knowledge, this is a first example of um, time being used to authorize commercial transactions in this way. Uh, the year number would be a kind of shorthand for the bureaucratical institutions backed by the states, but also for the universal categories of, of the exchangeable units at work, um, the, the weight units and the volume units. I think one of the one of the places we see consequences of this is of this kind of newly numericalized market, the association of time and weight or time and volume is we get new metaphors of of temporality in the Seleucid world, things which we we are in our modern world are completely familiar with, but in fact, I couldn't find examples of them before the Seleucid Empire. So these are things like buying time. Uh, the first evidence of the first example of someone buying time is in the book of Daniel written in the Seleucid Empire. Similarly, weighing time um, is a commodification of time that we would normally associate with modernity. But I think 
is anticipated in the Seleucid market. How and why did the Seleucid system of two ages, an imperial president pre-imperial past, emphasize a dynastic continuum and downplay what you refer to as the death ascension? What evidence do you provide for the consequences? So there's a paradox which is at the center of ancient kingdoms, probably all kingdoms, but most significant in antiquity, which is the paradox between the continuity of the kingdom, the dynastic corporation, um, the, uh, uh, the line of Persian kings, and the individuality of the reigning king, the line of Persian kings versus King Darius. Um, the great historian uh, Kantorovitz called this he famously called this, this tension um, the king's two bodies, that the king was simultaneously both <clears throat> the crown and a mortal human um, who would die. And when a king dies, you see that a lot of sort of ideological, um, sometimes ritual work needs to be done to demonstrate continuity. The Seleucid Empire, because it never returned to year one, seems to have, relative to other kingdoms, underplayed the life cycle of each king. The clock was never restarted. Um, the king never in himself instantiated time. So there seems to be an underplaying of um, the Basileus, of the king, with respect to the Basilea, the kingdom. It's almost a Basilea without a Basileus, a, a kingdom without a, without a king in temporal terms. The consequences seem to be that um, the moment of year one, uh, which elsewhere in other monarchic states was a moment of the king taking the throne, rebooting the kingdom, releasing prisoners, cancelling debts, restoring, restoring conditions to, um, to their primordial state as imagined, is not something that happens in the Seleucid Empire. You never have this. Uh, this restarting of the clock. As a result, actually, you don't have the social therapies which, which depend on it. Instead, you have this long temporal expanse which is opened up in which the kings are kind of striations within an overall continuity. I would say that the effects are range from everything from... Uh, deep time anniversaries become possible. Um, because you're counting um, years which have never previously been accessed by previous states, you can reach a year 100 or 101 and repeat actions of, that the kingdom's founder had done in year one. So you get kind of anniversaries open, new moments of historical significance. You also get a very strange texture. I would call it sort of proto-messianism or something or a sort of a messianic um, style to the monarchy, which is to say that the Seleucid kingdom has a general his, uh, historical fate of decline. Um, as, time, as the time gets bigger, its territories shrink, which means that an emphasis is placed on the early years as a golden age of the reign of Seleucus I as the original dispensation, which uh, which carves out the imperial space. It requires then every subsequent king to try and recreate, restore, 
support go back to this original um, this original condition of the state as the West has been lopped off by Rome and the East by Parthia. The kings are still trying to do what Seleucus I had done. It's a kind of, there's a condition of reenactment or it's almost campaigner's quotation um, to the Seleucid Empire. In his Babyloniaca, how and why did Barossus achieve historical and textual unity from the vantage point of a Seleucid present? In addition, how is the, how is the, uh, Babyloniaca, a, a repeated drama of textual loss, historical obscurity and responsibility amidst these temporal ruptures that undermine the limitations of the Seleucid era. And if possible, can you uh, address really briefly the Uruk list of kings and sages? Sure. So um, a whole set of discourses of which the Seleucid era date is probably um, the most significant. Um, made the Seleucid Empire, I argue in the book, made the Seleucid Empire feel like something new. Uh, a world filled with hundreds of thousands of dates, all dating back to year one, um, as well as court historiography, which wouldn't look back before Seleucus I, as well as a uh, project of colonization, new cities, which deliberately bypassed old cities and so on, all created, I think, a periodizing effect, a kind of horizon um, of uh, a horizon before which the Seleucid Empire didn't really look, um, a, a periodizing horizon, which generated a sense of um, this world, this Seleucid world in which we exist, and then the world before the Seleucids. In writing the book, I. Um, I'd been reading for a while a bunch of Near Eastern and Jewish uh, historiography and other, other texts which deal with the past, like novels and novelistic works, um, and had slowly sort of reached towards the conclusion that there's something quite particular about these histories written within the Seleucid Empire. I'd say they're characterized by two things. The first is I, I call it in the book historical distanciation, um, a term borrowed from the philosopher Ricoeur. Um, that is the sense of the pre-Hellenistic past, the pre-Seleucid world, as having been superseded and the present in which we live now as owing little to it. That's an experience of rupture and distance from the past that operates both internally and in kind of the psychological, personal spaces of the ancient inhabitants individually, but also I think uh, socially within their communities. So the first historical distanciation and the second, which follows from this, the sense that the closed pre-Seleucid past, um, the world before the Seleucid, from the beginning of the world to the Seleucid, had a unity and completeness to it, distinct from its individual events that constituted it. In the book, I call this um, the totalization an objectification of this world. Um, I think these, these two characteristics, uh, historical distanciation and totalization of the pre-Seleucid past, generates a new form of historiography. To paraphrase um, a, a famous um, title by Carlo Ginzburg, I call these writings from year one. The Babylonia Ka, which you refer to, um, is 
one of my favorite texts from antiquity. It's um, an amazing, unusual, and um, very helpful witness to the historical positioning that I'm describing. Um, just to sort of describe it very, very briefly, um, Barossus is, uh, was uh, a cuneiform literate priest who lived in Babylon. Um, his Babylonian name was probably Bel-Re-Ushunu, the Lord is their shepherd, um, gets uh, transliterated as Barossus. And he wrote in the reign of Antiochus I or Antiochus II, so the second or third Seleucid monarch, um, he wrote and dedicated to the king a three-book account of Babylonian culture and civilization in Greek, importantly. It ran as a continuous, unbroken narrative from the beginning of the world to the organized creation of life up to the fall of the Persians, um, and then it stopped. There's no space for Alexander the Great or the Seleucids in his history. It's as if the curtain comes down at year one of the Seleucid era. Um, so the book runs from the beginning of the world through the flood myth, through a succession of, of rulers, the Neo-Assyrian, the Neo-Babylonian and Achaemenid kings, um, and constitutes ultimately a kind of unification, an un a completely unprecedented unification into a single linked up narrative of Mesopotamian myths, dynastic histories, local cultural practices, other elements of scribal science and local law. It's as if the cuneiform archives of Babylonia were emptied out, ordered by chronology, translated into Greek, um, and smoothed out into this three-book history of pre-Seleucid Babylonia, um, sort of a universal library or a total history. The overriding impression you get from it is that Barossus is standing outside of the history he describes. It's um, you know, there's the, uh, the famous um, quotation of Archimedes, you know, give me a place to stand outside the earth and I can move it. This is like a point of Archimedes in time. Barossus is standing outside of the Babylonian past within the Seleucid Empire, staring back at it as this distanced and unitary thing that he can describe. It's really a, a remarkable, a remarkable text. The um, Uruk list of kings and scholars is something which does uh, very similar work. It describes um, a kind of um, co-team of a great king and a great advisor all the way from the past, um, before the flood, up to the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And then it stops. Um, and it's, again, a fairly unprecedented um, uh, ordering and unification of the past, which I think is made possible only by this distanciating effect of the Seleucid era. You touched on this a little bit. Um, can you uh, assess more the the Hebrew Bible and its its accommodation or lack thereof, actually, of the Hellenistic period within its limits, as demonstrated by the end of pro prophecy, the historiographic prediction, and extra biblical exegesis? And can you also touch on the significance of historical reviews? So. Um, the Hebrew Bible that we know is absolutely not canonized uh, by the Hellenistic period, but its chronological range is. Um, to recognize this, I think we kind of need to denaturalize something which 
centuries of liturgy and exegesis have made seem inevitable. The Hebrew Bible, to us, runs from the beginning of the world. It describes creation, um, the, the various creation myths, the exodus, uh, the wanderings in the desert, the, um, uh, the formation of a state in the promised land, the exile from that land under Nebuchadnezzar II, um, the return in the Achaemenid Empire, and the reconstruction of the Second Temple. That's a kind of double unit of the, of the Torah, the five books of Moses, and the prophets. Uh, what is so striking to me about this is that this, this text is being written for many reasons and over many, many centuries. And some of these texts are being reworked and edited and possibly even written in the Hellenistic world. But it doesn't talk about the Hellenistic world. It does exactly what Barossus does. It goes from the beginning of the world up to the Achaemenid Empire, um, that defeated by the Macedonians, and then it stops. And the period after the Achaemenid Empire has certain qualities of being a kind of post-classical temporal period. The many sort of controversies in Second Temple Judea and, and Judaism over um, politics and theology, over the temple cult, the origins of evil, the authority of Enoch, the, the guy I was talking about earlier. Um, nevertheless, there seems to be a fairly um, generally accepted chronological closure, the frame of biblical, the frame of reference for biblical and parabiblical writings stops before the Hellenistic period. The question is, is why? Um, I think, uh, I think it is this uh, sense of once again, this sense of the seleucid world as representing something new and something discrete. Um, it's, the Hellenistic world is still spoken about, but importantly, it's spoken about in terms of historical prediction rather than um, retrospective historical narration. So something like the book of Daniel will describe in the, as the experience of the prophet Daniel the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the Median Empire, and the Persian Empire, but then will frame the Seleucid Empire as knowable only through the visions of seers. So, in the book of Daniel, how did Nebuchadnezzar's dream and Daniel's interpretation, as well as the subsequent apocalyptic visions, narrate past world empires and predict the destruction of the Seleucid temporal regime? Can you also compare uh, these passages to the additional eschatological total histories in your book, like the uh, Apocalypse of the Animals and the Apocalypse of Weeks, the Babylonian narratives, and uh, the Zoroastrian uh, eschatological millenarian traditions. Also, what is your evidence that subject populations drafted these texts? So <clears throat> one of the big claims of the book, which I think I'm likely to get some heat over, um, is the connection between the Seleucid era system, that is the invention of open-ended numericalized time, which just goes on and on forever, um, and the emergence within the Seleucid empire for the first time of historical apocalypses, which bring time to an end, which bring that, uh, which run through 
the history of the world from the beginning or from an important moment in sequence and then predict time closing on the Seleucid Empire, that the Seleucid Empire marks the end of the world, will be punished, and time itself will come to an end. The book is arguing that there's an important dialectic relationship between these two things, that the Seleucid era was so new and so shocking and such a crisis of meaning, um, a loss of meaning in history, that when subject populations wanted to revolt against the Seleucid Empire, um, one of the ways they did so was by revolting against the Seleucid time system. I think it's really important to note that a bunch of sources of ancient texts written not in Greek, but in Aramaic, Hebrew, Akkadian, uh, and probably Persian, so definitely written by the subject populations to answer that part of your question, um, appear for the first time in the Seleucid Empire. They appear simultaneously in Judea, Babylonia, and probably, with some debate, Iran. This is, this is something which has been recognized for a while, but not connected to the Seleucid Empire. The, the simultaneous or close connection between um, this, uh, this body of text has been explained as um, the influence of the Persians on the Jews, or the Jews on the Persians, or the Babylonians, a kind of you know, competition of nations to who is the source. I'm explaining it in this book by, it's the common experience of the Seleucid Empire in, in each of these regions. The most famous of these apocalyptic texts is the book of Daniel. It's the only one which is canonized in the Bible. Um, it's also the easiest biblical text to date because it describes a history of the world which is accurate down to about 165 BCE and then is inaccurate after that date. So it's written at the time of the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucid Empire, which is um, uh, the event still celebrated in the festival of, of Hanukkah. Um, like Barossus and the Babyloniaca I was describing, um, the book of Daniel runs through in a kind of folktale way um, a series of the empires ruling in Babylonia. Daniel is presented as um, as a Judean exiled by Nebuchadnezzar II to the palace in Babylon, um, where he is educated in Babylonian ways and essentially becomes a courtier, first to Nebuchadnezzar II, then to Darius the Mede, an invented ruler um, of the Median kingdom, and then to Cyrus the Great. So through the Neo-Babylonian, Median, and Persian empires. And he acts as a kind of wise advisor to each of them. In chapter two, of this book, and then in the second half, um, Daniel has visions or dreams in which he predicts the future history of the succession of kingdoms. He predicts the coming of the Seleucids and their punishment by God in the end of days. Probably chapter two is the most famous one. Um, Nebuchadnezzar II has a bad dream. Uh, he can't sleep. Uh, he calls all the wise advisors of the Babylonian court. To, um, to, to first tell him what the dream was and then what the dream means. All the wise men of Babylon object. They say, how can we tell you what your dream means if you don't tell us what it is? Um, Nebuchadnezzar accuses 
them of buying time, the first use of that metaphor. Um, but ultimately, Daniel, through prayer, is able to be told what the dream is. And the dream is Nebuchadnezzar saw in his sleep a giant statue. Its head was of gold, its body of silver, its thighs of bronze, and its uh, feet and lower legs and toes of um, clay, uh, clay mixed with iron. And Daniel interprets this as the head of gold represents the Babylonian Empire. Uh, the silver is the Median, the bronze is the Persian, and then the clay mixed with iron is, uh, is, is, the, is the Hellenistic kingdoms of the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemies. So there's a clear a structure of decline, um, both it's moving earthward, it's moving into the uh, least um, noble parts of the body, it's moving from gold to clay. Um, then Daniel sees a stone carved not by human hand, um, break the, hit the feet of the statue, which topples. All of the statue is destroyed and the stone fills the earth. This is the apocalyptic age. This is the divine punishment of human pagan kingship um, and its replacement by some kind of apocalyptic eschaton, the end of times. History has come to an end. If possible, please discuss your evidence for the notion that scribes and priests across Babylonia, Persia, Armenia, and Judea apprehended, quoting you, externality as to their own cultural traditions and antiquarianizing, <clears throat> antiquarianizing nostalgia, a recognition of the inefficacy of ruling kings, and so an absorption of their prerogatives and responsibilities. Uh, what about Greeks and the Anatolian uh, uh, coastal uh, polis and uh, inland colonies? So yeah, there are two parts to that question. The first is um, we see in much of the Near East uh, local populations self-antiquarianizing. They are deliberately recreating ancient rituals, rebuilding ruined monuments, reviving defunct languages and scripts. Um, all at the moment of their um, attempted emancipation from the Seleucid Empire. It's this very strange but multi-regional phenomenon of, um, in the book I call it Alt Neuland, um, quoting Theodore Herzl's famous um, programmatic text of Zionism, Old New Land, that in an attempt to revive a local autonomy, they respond to the Seleucid Empire by going back into their history, reopening their history, making their past accessible to the future once more, undoing this horizon that the Seleucids have established. You can see it in, in many, many places in Persia, Armenia, Judea. Um, the Greeks, which are the second part of your question, are quite difficult to fit into this story. And it was something I really struggled with as I was writing this book, how to how to accommodate the evidence of Greek polis into the Seleucid Empire. The Hellenistic world, really since its first study by um, the Prussian historian Droysen, has been understood in ethnic terms as um, the Greeks and the rest of the Near East, um, the, uh, with the Hellenistic kingdoms as part of the, in alliance with the Greek city-states of the Mediterranean coast, coastlines as um, Hellenizing the local populations. 
Um, it's a sort of an ethical alliance. It's also an ethnic alliance. So I was, I really didn't want to recreate this, this binary. Um, but it's to a certain extent, it's what the evidence indicated. Um, the Greek populations of the Seleucid Empire do not produce apocalyptic um, eschatology like the Jews, the Babylonians, and the Iranians do. They don't seem to participate in this antiquarianizing nostalgia like the Armenians, the Persians, the Jews, and the Babylonians do. They do not um, seem to write these total histories of their own past from the beginning of the world up to the Seleucid Empire and then stop. Um, they do all these things later under the Roman Empire, um, especially in a moment called the Second Sophistic, but they don't do it under the Seleucid Empire. And I think it's partly that um, they represent the cultural content of what modernity is within the, within the Seleucid context. So how and why did the Seleucid era expose the, quoting you, irreversibility, the loss and indifference of time? What happened to these temporalities? So the Seleucid era was one year after another, without the possibility of a return to year one, without the social therapies that would accompany that, without the um, semantic comfort of an end point which would give meaning to it. It is literally just one thing after another. Um, it's not tick-tock, which is what the previous systems have been. It's just tick, 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 tick. Um, I think the evidence for my claim is indirect, that um, the Seleucid era generates a challenge to an understanding of time because it is irreversible. Um, and it is evidently indifferent to the realities of what's going on on the ground. It's um, indifferent to who is king. It's indifferent to political change. It just keeps on going. Um, the evidence is, I think, the uh, both the very structure of the Seleucid era, um, the new metaphors which arrive, but above all, uh, what it seems to have provoked in response, which are... Um, uh, Things like apocalyptic eschatology literature, which is a desire to fill the passage of time with as much meaning as possible, to say that everything which happens to you happens for you, that God directs it, that it's moving towards a conclusion, that you can link it up into a story. Um, in doing this, apocalyptic literature is, I think, sort of playing the function of a whole range of cultural systems previously existent and existent outside the Seleucid Empire, which are all there to deny what is, in fact, the reality, that time is irreversible, it is a loss, and it is indifferent to us. The remarkable thing about the Seleucid Empire, I think, is it developed a, a chronological system which comes very, very close to revealing this kind of heartless reality for what it is. So thank you for being on the show today. I actually have a final question. What's your, uh, can you disclose your next project or can you, uh, are you going on vacation or what's, what's, what, what are you, what's going on next for you? Your project, another writing or what? <laughs> oh, I would love to be going on vacation. I am actually taking my students to Sicily next week over spring break, which will be a lot of fun. 
um, and a lot of work. <laughs> uh, but my my next book project is I'm still I don't you know, I'm, I'm still searching, but I'm pretty confident it will be um, a kind of cultural history of the shoreline in antiquity, of the various processes and meanings and religious rituals which occur where the sea meets the land, um, and seeing this landscape as a um, as something which throws people into uh, philosophical um, and theoretical thinking about the nature of the cosmos. So again, thank you for being on the show today, Professor Cosman. Thank you so much for hosting me. So the, the book is uh, Time and Its Adversaries in the Seleucid Empire uh, by Paul Cosman, out uh, last year by uh, Harvard University Press. This is Ryan Tripp on behalf of both Professor Cosman and the New Books Network, the Archaeology Channel. Tune in next time. <laughs>